In this first section in 112, we had studied about Herod's banquet. Now we're going to see another one with a little simpler menu and a lot more wholesome atmosphere. 13 to 21. <clears throat> Now when Jesus heard, he withdrew from there in a boat to a lonely place by himself. And when the multitude heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when he went ashore, he saw a great multitude and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. And when it was evening, the disciples came to him, saying, The place is desolate, and the time has already passed. So send the multitudes away, that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, We have here only five loaves and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. And ordering the multitudes to recline on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fish, and look, looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food. And breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave to the multitudes. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they picked up what was left over, the broken pieces, twelve full baskets. And there were about five thousand men who ate, aside from women and children. Okay. So Jesus is withdrawing in a boat to a secluded place by himself. Now we really know from other, the other Gospels, by himself means with his 12 best friends. But, but, you know, still by himself, relatively speaking, compared to all these crowds. But what happens? They beat him there. So what does that tell you about them? They're interested in something. Yeah. They're they're just as determined to be with Jesus as Jesus and the apostles are to be alone. (laughs) And they've, uh, you know, gotten there before he's uh, actually gotten to the other side and they're awaiting him. And, uh, well, you know, what does Jesus do? How does he feel and what does he do? Feels compassion and heals their sick. Yeah. Now, you know, what does that tell you about Jesus? He's not selfish. That's exactly right. He shelves his own plans in favor of the needs of the crowd. You know, he cares about them. I think I would have been irritated. You know, I want some peace and quiet. I need some peace and quiet. You know, he's been with crowds a lot. Can't they give him a moment? But he doesn't feel like that. Jesus is always thinking about others. So it's very encouraging. And and I mean, you know, it's not like they're just there. They're there pestering him from my perspective. You know, they want to be healed. They want this. They want that. You know, but Jesus didn't ever seem to feel pestered. You know, he always seemed to care about their needs. It's really encouraging. And makes us think about, you know, our attitude toward others. You know, because man, I just can't imagine myself in this situation acting the way Jesus acted. Uh, wow. Yeah, when you when you asked, what does that tell you about Jesus? I was going to say, he's not like me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, really. It, you, you know, you get to feeling pretty good about yourself when you, you know, look around at some of the low lives around us or whatever, but you compare yourself with Jesus and you realize, wow, we've still got a long ways to go in so many areas. And then, you know, it's evening, the disciples are coming to him, and what do they want Jesus to do? Send them 
send all the people away. Tell them to go home. Stay yeah. Some food. And go and buy some food for themselves. You know, I mean, they realize, you know, somebody, they're going to have to eat. <laughs> but uh, it's not going to be here. So, you know, dismiss them and let them go and get something to eat. Jesus says, uh, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. Now, that is a bit of a challenge. You know, Jesus says to the disciples, you give them something to eat. But what did the disciples see in that? Limited supply. Yeah, there's not a lot of resources and there's a whole lot of appetite. You know, this is not going to work. But Jesus doesn't look at it that way. He sees God able to provide the resources that are needed. You know, the disciples look at their inventory with despair. You know, we've only got enough for five sandwiches here. Uh, it's not going to work. But when God tells us to do something, he always accompanies the command with sufficient resources and power to do whatever he commands. If he tells you to do it, he'll equip you to do it. That's the point. And he does. Jesus says, well, bring them here. The Lord normally starts with what we have. And so he does. And he shows us what we can accomplish by starting with what we have by God's power and strength. Now they sit down. He takes the, the loaves and the fish. He blesses the food. He breaks the loaves. He gives it to the disciples and gives it to the disciples and gives it to the disciples and keeps giving and giving and giving and giving to the point where everybody ate and was satisfied and they have how much leftovers? A basket for each apostle. That's a lot more than they had to start with, just in <laughs> leftovers. And how many when were filled? 5,000. That's pretty incredible. This is the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels except for the resurrection of Jesus. So there must be something important about this miracle, and really there are a lot of things important about it. For one thing, isn't this an impressive one? Wow. That is just not going to happen, you know, by sleight of hand. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, you can you can sometimes pull a rabbit out of your hat, but you're not going to pull enough food out of your hat to feed five thousand men. <laughs> uh, so it's just just incredible. But but think about this. I'm not going to be dogmatic about this at all. But do you think it's possible that Jesus intended this miracle to be a foreshadowing? of his greater supper that he would institute, even though the menu's different. And that supper is a foreshadowing of the great heavenly banquet that the Bible speaks of several times. I'm not sure about that, but I've wondered if this wasn't, and he uses some similar language like blessing and breaking and giving, if maybe there's intended to be a little bit of, of you know, symbolic significance to this in that. I don't know. Comments and thoughts on all that? Could you repeat what you said about uh, the Lord normally starts with what we have and, and then, then how did you... Well, he starts with what we have and then he, he empowers us despite our limitations. He basically grows what we have. He makes it adequate. You know, and he does that all the time. You know, he'll take David with five stones and kill Goliath. You know, God, you know, makes him adequate. 
you know, he'll take Gideon with 300 men equipped with trumpets, torches, and uh, lanterns and, uh, you know, destroy the Midianites. And, you know, think about this. Actually, this was cool. Uh, I'd heard him talk about this before, but we talked about this a little bit on the way down to Johnson City. Edwin was telling about this, and I think this is helpful. Do you know how God did this? No. No, I don't really know how this worked. Well, think about this. Aren't there sometimes that we doubt God's power because we don't know how he's going to do something? For example, Edwin talked about this example. You know, when you read the story of David and Goliath, and you emphasize certain things, and you come to the end and you say, who is it that killed Goliath? Who killed Goliath? David. And in another sense, who killed Goliath? God. Now, do we agree that in some senses God killed Goliath? Yeah, he's, he's the one that's responsible for the victory. But, who picked up the stones? Who threw the stone? You know, who took the sword and cut off Goliath's head? What did God do? If God killed Goliath, what did he do? Did he, did he control, did he, did he give a supernatural velocity to the stone? Did he radar guide the stone? <laughs> you know, did he, did he give David a special throwing ability? You know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Did he have, you know, Goliath move at just the right moment to get the stone at the right spot? You know, did he cause the stone to, you know, uh, his, did he cause him to have a, you know, weak spot in his, uh, his skull right there? You know, so I have no idea. I have no idea what God did. Did God do it? Yes. Did man do it? Yes. God's the one who gets the credit. But I don't know what God did. You know, I can think of all, there's probably all kinds of possibilities. Yeah. Maybe none of those. Maybe, maybe, I don't know. Well, does the fact that we don't know how God does it mean he didn't do it? No. I think that's edifying to see that. I don't even know how God did this. I don't really know what, what, what happened here. I don't know how this works. But it doesn't matter. You know, God does it. And we can trust him. So, but we say, well, I don't see how God could do this, so I guess he won't. Well, no. We don't have to see how he'll do it to trust that he'll do it. Just trust in him and, and let him take care of it. Well, I think of that with, um, you know, we pray for, for healings of people today. Yes. And it frustrates me sometimes to hear... Uh, <laughs> Prayers that you know specifically ask you know to, to make make the doctors effective and 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 so forth and God could do it that way, but He could do it a lot of other ways too and and it just seems kind of narrow to to have to limit God to be to do it through one medium. Yeah, do we try to tell God how to do His job? <laughs> yeah, you know, do it do this, God, and do it this way. You know. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. I, mean, I know what people mean when they say that, and I know they mean well, but on the other hand, it's, it's like, well, what if he doesn't use the, the doctor's hands to do it? Well, given some doctors, it may not be inappropriate to pray for the doctors anyway. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, first do no harm. So, uh, But yeah, I, that's, that's a very good point. I mean, I think we just have to trust, and we know, and we have to do what we can. I mean, I think it is, starting with their resources. He didn't say, oh, we don't need those sandwiches. 
you know, I'll just get it. No. God wants us to do what we can. I mean, could, could David have just said, well, God, kill Goliath? You know? No. I mean, he picked up those stones and he slang, slung, whatever you do with the past tense of sling, the, 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 the stone. <laughs> Sling, slang, slung. Like he used the slingshot. <laughs> <laughs> he slingshotted it. That's it. <laughs> is that what it is? Uh, I don't know. I, I'll tell you, our verbs are a mess. But. Yeah. My Chinese friend thinks so too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's right. Sure. All right. Other comments or thoughts on this section? All right. How about. 22 to 33. Right then, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead to the other side of the lake while he dismissed the crowds. When he sent them away, he went up onto a mountain by himself to pray. Evening came and he was alone. Meanwhile, the boat, fighting a strong headwind, was being battered by the waves and was already far away from land. Very early in the morning, he came to his disciples, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. They were so frightened they screamed. Just then Jesus spoke to them, Be encouraged. It's me. Don't be afraid. Peter replied, Lord, if it's you, come to me. Order me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, Come. Then Peter got out of the boat and was walking on the water toward Jesus. But when Peter saw the strong wind, he became frightened. As he began to sink, he shouted, Lord, rescue me. Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him, saying, you man of weak faith, why did you begin to have doubts? When they got into the boat, the wind settled down. Then those in the boat worshipped or worshipped Jesus and said, You must be God's son. We just uh, heard a talk about this section uh, last night. Caleb's uncle. And it was really good. Um, but, you know, he made the disciples get into the boat and go to the other side while he goes up in the mountain to pray. You see Jesus doing that several times. You know, taking advantage of some alone time to pray. Of course, now you've got the disciples in the middle of the lake and Jesus back on the shore. And what's been happening on the lake? Yeah. Not a good situation. It's a it's a stormy uh, uh, lake. The wind, the waves are battering. Um, so what did the disciples do wrong? Yeah. We, don't we think that way a lot of times? Oh, a storm came up. What did I do wrong? Well, maybe nothing. A storm came up. You know, it didn't mean they were doing the wrong thing. And, uh, well, Jesus, um, you know, he realizes where they are, and he decides to come help. And the quickest way uh, between two points is a straight line, right? <laughs> so what does he do? Yeah. Now... Remember, he's not even walking on a still quiet sea. He's walking on a very turbulent sea. I would, you know, I don't know. If I had the ability to walk on water, it would seem easier to do it on a calm lake. <laughs> but I uh, don't have that ability either. So, um, but Jesus comes to them. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Yeah, Cameron. Um, where does, you said that they were panicking. Where does it say that they're panicking about the waves? It says they panic about Jesus being on the water. But yeah, that's true. Good point. Uh, that's that's the thing that scares them. Though probably 
being that late at night may have helped them uh, be panic-stricken. So good. But point. does it mention uh, the other Gospels that they panicked about the storm? Or I don't even know. May. Uh, I don't know. So they're terrified when they see Jesus. I mean, wouldn't they want to see Jesus? <laughs> wouldn't it be nice to see Jesus, you know, at a time like this? <laughs> Uh, but uh, they're not kind of looking for him like this, are they? <laughs> you know, here he is, and, uh, you know, his, his coming this way uh, terrifies them. And uh, he, he says, take courage in his eye, do not be afraid. It's just amazing to see Jesus' power over water like this. Peter wants to see, he wants to be with Jesus. What does he ask? If it's really you, then command me to come out to Yeah, let me come. You know, this is, this is cool. He wants to come to Jesus. So Jesus says, come. So he gets out of the boat, starts walking over to Jesus. Everything's going smoothly until what? Yeah. Peter's faith was strong enough to get him out of the boat and start walking, but not strong enough to stand up to the storm when he took his eyes off of Jesus and started looking at that. Isn't that our problem? We forget to look at Jesus. You know, we look at the problem, we look at the difficulty, we look at how impossible it is, and we're terrified. If we would just keep looking at Jesus, he's the one who has the strength. You know, everything depended on where Peter looked. Um, and so Jesus rescues him, <laughs> and they're like, "Wow, he's God's son." They worship him. Um, this is the first of incidents in all each one of five chapters in a row that zero in on Peter. There will be something specifically about Peter here and in chapters 15, 16, 17, and 18. So Peter gets a lot of special attention uh, through this part of Matthew. Comments? Questions? In 27, I have a note written in when he says, Take courage, it is I, that the it is I is the same as I am. Do you I think know if that that's maybe, true? I think that's right. Okay. I think that is right. Other comments? Yes, Cameron. I think it's interesting to see that he sees them out there. Like, that far away, you can't see somebody in the middle of a sea that's being tossed about by that, and then there's the storm, so you can't see the other storm. But he does a miracle in the fact that he saw them in the first place, and then he walks out there. He knew where to go, didn't he? Yeah. Doesn't get lost in the middle of the lake. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's amazing. Other thoughts? Does this seem... This miracle seemed a little different than most in that uh, I was trying to see what the purpose was or why he would answer Peter. I mean, if you wanted to, you could compare it to the Pharisees later saying, show us a sign. And that's kind of what Peter saying. If it's really you, command me to come to you. <coughs> so it's similar to that. Good points. About that second point, I am not sure about this, but I have taken it more not that let me do it, but just let me come to you. Not so much, you know, let me see if this will really work, but he just wanted to be with Jesus. But I may be wrong about that. But that's the way I've rationalized that. Anyway.
I've thought some about the first question. You know, kind of like all of Jesus' other miracles seem like they're signs that point to something deeper about him. It's a little harder to pick that out in this one. I mean, is it that when Jesus is there, everything's okay? You know, that's one lesson out of that. That's not so tied to his walking on the water. So I don't have a real good answer to that. But it does seem different. I've thought that myself. I mean, there's several obvious things. He's still teaching the apostles and, and proving to them who he is, which it seems like in every situation, in every new thing that he does, they're amazed and surprised. Mm-hmm. And once again, they're amazed and surprised that he can walk on the water and calm the storm. And Indeed. You do have lots of Old Testament texts where God is the master of the sea, of the storm, and things like that. You have things like Jonah, you know, and Psalm 107 is really strong on that. And there's several passages like that. So, I mean, Jesus' dominance of the sea and the storm really is a claim to be God. In a sense, this would be a little bit similar to the feeding miracle in that the apostles sort of did it too. Right, right, know? right. So he's, he's, so I don't know what exactly that means, or what, you know, showing them or giving them some power or, or using them as a demonstration to prove to themselves what he wants them to believe or something like that. Well, it certainly should make us think, you know, wonder what we could do if we just keep our eyes on Jesus. You know, But isn't it disorienting and so troubling when we start focusing in on the human situation and not on the Lord's power? I mean, that's, that's, I see that as my problem. You know, I get distracted with problems that overwhelm me instead of focusing on the Lord who solves all of them. You know, if we looked at the Lord, we put the problems in a different perspective. Other thoughts? <clears throat> I heard a sermon about this that you know we always kind of rag on Peter for not having the faith, and you know he sank, but he was the only one that got out of the boat. <laughs> so, yes. Uh, you know we. You know, the others might have just been trying to play it safe so they don't go out there and, um, you know, find themselves inadequate. Point well taken, yeah. Who, who else would have gotten out of the boat? <laughs> Cameron. I think sometimes we will do anything, we use anything as a distraction not to serve God. We'll use anything... Um, not to do his will, but Peter here will do anything to get to him. And we have sometimes the completely wrong focus. We need to have that kind of love of Jesus. We want to do anything to where we can get to Jesus. Amen. All right, 34 to 36. When they crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. <laughs> And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent into they sent into all that surrounding district and brought to him all who were sick. And they began to entreat him 
that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak, and as many as touched it were cured. Does it much matter where he goes? It's the same thing everywhere. You know, they recognize him, and boy, it's not any time before the sick are all out there, and they're trying to even just touch the fringe of his cloak uh, to be healed. Pretty impressive. And pretty stressful, I would think, if you were Jesus. But would this have been <clears throat> more stressful than the situation in, in Nazareth where they wouldn't even come to him? Yeah, good point. At least they recognize his power. They did do that. And we're glad to have him. So was the life expectancy in the first century a lot longer than <laughs> after Jesus got done? <laughs> I mean, yeah. People are living a lot longer. <laughs> I bet the insurance companies didn't like that very well. Uh, life insurance, anyway. <laughs> Run the actuarial tables. I hadn't thought about that. That's a good point. So he heals a lot of people. I mean, wow. You think about all the times he heals multitudes, you wonder how many thousands, tens of thousands of cases he dealt with. Maybe how many times that? he healed the same person? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I got sick again and came back again. <laughs> yeah. I know, did you have like super good health after you were healed by Jesus? <laughs> I don't know. We have a bad Yeah, I don't think it kept him from dying. So, of course, it'd be like the guy who wanted to know, well, what did he die of? Say, well, I can't remember, but wasn't anything serious. <laughs> <laughs> All right, chapter fifteen. We come to controversy. Um, Let's go ahead and read 1 to 20. We may not get all this in, but... Uh...